What is up with the front row right here? Let me, I'm going to see something. Let's see. It seems like a good seat. Okay. Next week, one of you people be bold and sit in the special seats here in the front. Okay, Ray? Okay. How many of you still have your Christmas lights on? None? <laughs> okay. Some of you holdouts. Trying to be efficient, right? Just leave them up till next year? That makes sense. That makes sense. So we're in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue church Bibles. Turn to page 849. That'll bring you to the text before us today. Before I jump into this sermon... I just want to encourage you again to get your books for the growth groups or men's group or women's group before you leave if you have not. So that means that there will be an incredible rush on the resource table and there's only one person handling the book sales and purchases. So just be patient and wait, but don't leave. We have approximately 50 or so books that need to be picked up. So a lot of you need to do that before you leave today. If you have any problem with being able to pay for them, just get them and let us know and we'll work something out, okay? So make sure you pick them up because we're starting growth groups this week and then the men's and women's studies the following week. Titled this message, False Religion. False Religion. Now, religion can simply mean this, a system or set of beliefs and practices that relate to God or in a more general way, the divine. Religion. False, I think you know what it means, but just for clarity, not conforming to the truth. Incorrect. Mistaken. Maybe you've seen this pic. It'll pop up any second. Maybe you've seen it on the back of cars. It's a bumper sticker. Coexist. The idea behind this organization that this label represents is that all of the religions of the world should just get along, specifically the three great religions as they are often referred to, Islam and Judaism and Christianity represented there by the crescent moon, the star and the cross on the end, along with some other interesting things, religions and such inside of this word coexist. Tolerance, beloved. Tolerance now means acceptance. Full acceptance. Embracing. I'll tell you what, I, I have a neighbor across the street and he plays music from time to time that is completely inappropriate and loud. You know what I'm saying? I tolerate, which means that I don't go over there and destroy his stereo system, or put a hand on him. I tolerate the foul and vile music that comes out of his garage. But that doesn't for a second mean that I embrace it or accept the filthiness and the nonsense of the lyrics. Why would I accept something that is flat out false or wrong or incorrect or mistaken? Why would I do that? And there is a danger right now 
and has been for some time, but even more so at this point in our culture, because this idea of acceptance, of embracing anything and everything is being promoted, especially all religions. And the idea is this, that all religions have something good to offer, and which one you follow is really just a matter of preference or maybe just family tradition. Because after all, in the end, they all lead to God. That's just not true. That's just not true. The New Testament is filled with warnings about false teachers and false religion. This coexist corporation, there's no way they could have read through the New Testament and understood Christianity at all, because then it would have been very clear that the New Testament writers were not tolerant of anything that went against or opposed Christianity and its truth. In fact, many of the New Testament letters were written specifically to address some particular perversion of the truth that was going around at the time and claiming to be true religion. Listen for a second. You've probably heard this passage before from the book of Galatians. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who has called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Beloved, gospel is shorthand for, or it literally means good news, but it is shorthand in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, with the writers, for the good message. That particular message of Christianity that they were proclaiming and teaching and instructing in. He says, I am shocked that you are turning to a different gospel. And he says this, not that there is another one. Not as if there's options or there's multiple ways. He goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort or pervert the true gospel of Christ. But even if we as, as apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you, tell you about, proclaim to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema, excommunicated, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Wow, Paul, not very tolerant of other religions, are you? Why would he be? Why would he be? We are losing biblical discernment in our culture and are embracing anything and everything in the name of tolerance, and so-called love. Beloved, we have a candidate who's running for office who is a Mormon, right? And when a Christian pastor mentioned the fact that Mormonism was a cult, which every Christian knows already because it does not subscribe to the main tenets of the Christian faith, It is a cult. That pastor was criticized, beaten down. How dare you speak about that man and his religion in that way? We need to embrace all faiths. 
How is it loving, by the way, to endorse something that is false? Just think about that. Well, Jesus spoke out against the false religion of his day. He did not welcome it. He did not embrace it. He did not tolerate it. He did not give it a wink or a nod. He spoke harshly against it. Now, the context we are in here in Mark, just to remind you, we're in a section of Mark that details basically a very long and no doubt exhausting day for Jesus during his last week on earth. This is a few days now in this section of Mark before his crucifixion. He had been in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem since early morning. Spent the whole day there, and he's been teaching and dealing with the difficult and hostile questions of, guess who? The religious leaders. And if you've been with us in Mark, you know about that. We've gone through it. Now remember, or just to recall, on the previous day, Jesus raised quite a ruckus in the temple. He threw people out. Boy, that sounds very intolerant. He threw people out and overturned tables that were being used to conduct business within the temple grounds. After doing that, Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah, from the scriptures, chapter 56, verse 7, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And then he added his own commentary, But you have made it a den of robbers. Whoa. After Jesus said that, Mark 11:18 records this, and the chief priest and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So, when Jesus returns the next day, the religious leaders are there and ready to confront him. And they came to him with their questions, not as sincere seekers of knowledge or wanting To know something, but in an attempt to trap him, hoping somehow that Jesus' answers to their questions would discredit him with the crowds, that he might say something unpopular, and the crowds would no longer be favorable towards him, but turn against him. Or, maybe he would say something that would get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. Therefore, the question about Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's what's going on. They want to see this guy fall. But at this point in Mark, they have been unable to trap Jesus, so they are done now. They have no more questions to ask him. They have failed. But guess what? Jesus is not through talking. He had some very direct, harsh, and revealing words about the religious leaders who stood for and stood behind what had become a corrupt and false religious system. This, beloved, was a system that elevated human traditions and rules over God's Word. We have religions like that today. And demanded the strict practice of external religious rituals while neglecting the real problem of humanity their eternal sinful heart. This was a religious system that had been taken over by men and used as a means, if you can believe this, for their financial gain. 
We see that all the time. It's still going on today. A false religious system that soon was going to come under the judgment of God. What Jesus said about these corrupt religious leaders while he was in the temple, which was the center of their worship system, is recorded in its entirety in Matthew 23. You might want to jot that down and read it sometime. Anytime someone wants to tell you about how tolerant Jesus was of false religion or other religions... Just have him read Matthew 23. But in Mark 12, we have now just a sampling of what happened in Matthew 23. And that's what's going to be our focus and of our attention today. Now, in addition, I have included the text or scene that directly follows Jesus' condemning words because I believe they are linked or go together, but probably not how you might expect. So there'll be a little bit of twist and turn and mystery today. Which means you can't fall asleep or you'll miss the end. And that's the best part. So, Mark 12, 38 through 44. Let's read the text. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. So this morning, if you have a bulletin with you on the inside, left side, there is an outline so you can follow along. We're going to look at, hopefully see, four deplorable pictures of false religion. You know what deplorable is? It means awful, terrible, appalling, disgusting, vile. Got the idea? For deplorable pictures of false religion so that we might understand the importance of defending and spreading the truth. The truth, beloved. The scribes... were the trusted interpreters and appliers of God's Word or the Scriptures or the Old Testament or the Law. These men, these scribes, these religious leaders were supposed to guide the Jewish people towards the truth because they were supposedly experts in God's truth. But the reality was they were false teachers who corrupted the truth and helped build and design a false religious system that the Jewish people followed. Now, I want you to think about something. Here is a sad, sad truth about false religion. False religion has no power to overcome sin. None. Or to truly transform the sinful heart. 
It may masquerade as being godly, put on a front, a show, but it lacks genuine godliness. And as a result, so do those who subscribe to it and promote it, such as these scribes. And I'm hoping that understanding that might help us not be okay with watching our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and community get sucked up into it. Because it leaves them enslaved to their sin. And sin is destructive, no matter how you slice it. Well, let's look at the first deplorable picture of false religion. Pride. Pride. Which in this case is being manifested in self-importance. In self-importance. Look back at the text with me. Jesus says in his teaching, beware of the scribes. You know what? These guys like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats at the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. You know what you have here? You have a description of religious people who are anything but humble. There's no humility, not even a hint of it. But they're dominated by pride. And they continue to feed the monster, the consuming monster that pride is. They here regularly seek out the admiration and praise of people. They want to make sure that they are looked upon or seen as significant and important in the eyes of others. And they desire the highest honors wherever they go. It says that they walked around in long robes. Why might that be? you think they were cold? I don't know. Probably not. Do they enjoy bathroom attire? These are jokes and it's okay to laugh even though I'm serious. I'll try harder next time. No, these long white linen garments distinguish them from the common colorful Jewish dress that everyone else wore. This long robe was a a religious uniform, in a sense. And it was regarded as a sign of religious devotion and scholarship on the part of the wearer. And guess what? They liked to walk around in it. They didn't stay home. They put on their long robe and went out for a stroll because it quickly placed them above everyone else, elevated their self-importance, fed their sinful egos. Oh, and by the way, when they walked around in the marketplace, they enjoyed special greetings and recognition of their positions, like being called rabbi, master. People may have even stood when they walked down the street and possibly would take their hand and kiss it as a sign of honor and respect. (laughs) 
No one even stands. Nothing. No rabbi. No master. It's because I didn't have the robe on, wasn't it? That would have distinguished me. When a scribe entered a synagogue, there was only one place good enough for them to sit. The best one. Located in the front, in the middle, near the chest that contained the scrolls of Scripture and actually facing the congregation so that all could see their pretty face. Now, maybe that is not your idea of the best seat. I can't even get you guys to come up in the front and face me. But it was reserved in the synagogue for people of distinction or of great importance. That's where they wanted to be. When scribes were invited to dinner, special dinner party, they were seated closest to the host, another place of honor or distinction. And during the party, they would receive special treatment as the host guest. Beloved, here's all I want you to see. I mean, you should see that. This is a religious leader, right? That's ugly. It's filthy. It's vile. Because false religion, beloved, has no power over our pride. But instead, it serves as a breeding ground for its many evil manifestations. You remember Jesus' words in Mark 10, 43, 44? Here's what he says. Here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you want to be great? You must be a slave of all. This is the complete opposite of true religion. This is a false religion. This is a manifestation of those who have not conquered pride. They have no way of conquering pride because they have given themselves to a system that focuses on the external rather than the internal, where pride rules and reigns inside the heart. And so even the religious leaders are committed to this abominable pride and manifest it proudly. How about another deplorable picture of false religion? First, pride. Second, greed. Greed. Hey, let's look back at the text together. Mark 12, 40. These scribes devour widows' houses. Now, there's a discussion among Bible scholars about exactly what this description entails. And without knowing the specifics for sure, I think anyone reading this would know that devouring a widow's house sounds like a really bad thing. Would you give me that? If I devour my meal, that might not be good for my stomach. But to take to oneself the house or possessions of one of the most defenseless people In ancient culture, the widow surely rises to the level of supreme evil. Don't you think? The scribes or law teachers or lawyers, as they are also referred to in Matthew 22.35, were not allowed to be paid for their services. 
And they would help people in the way of the law because they were experts in the law. So they would help a widow with her estate planning and the legalities of what to do with her possessions. But in order to satisfy their gross and disgusting greed, they took advantage of these vulnerable women in their time of great need by taking their assets, either possibly through dishonest management of their estates or by maybe taking advantage of their generosity. And ultimately, they would leave these women penniless. Now, to me, this is similar to assaulting an old lady on the street in order to take her purse. It's disgusting and vile, but beloved, these were not criminals who did the mugging. They were religious leaders. But their false religious system with all of its external rules and rituals was not able to restrain their gross eternal greed. And as a result, they preyed on the weakest within their society instead of defending and supporting them. See, I'm just taking a different approach to this text. I want you to see behind the text. False religion is deplorable because it allows sin to rule and reign in a person's heart and it manifests itself in all sorts of godly ways and Jesus is pulling back the cover and exposing it for what it really is. Coexist. How about number three? Insincerity. First deplorable picture of false religion is pride manifested in self-importance. The second is greed, even willing, desiring, plotting to steal from widows. Insincerity, Mark 12, 40. Back at the text, they devour widows' houses and for pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Pretense means insincere behavior or something done that is not genuine but is intended to deceive somebody. I'll say that again. Pretense means insincere behavior or something done that is not genuine but is meant to deceive somebody. One translation, the New American Standard Bible, translates this passage this way. For appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. The NIV translates it this way, for a show. Maybe that's a little more clear. For a show, they make lengthy prayers. Listen, in order to convince people that they are really devoted to God and loved Him, they would offer up prayers that would go on and on on, in order to impress and gain their confidence. Now, there is nothing wrong with long prayers, unless you're holding a baby, but there is something very wrong 
with using prayer as a form of manipulation or in order to gain some advantage over others. And beloved, the close connection between the long, insincere prayers and the devouring of widows' houses suggests that these long prayers may have been employed by these religious leaders to cover the fact that they were greedy and they were out to take the widow's stuff. So upon hearing these long prayers, of course, people might say, hey, this guy can't be that bad. I mean, listen to how he prays. I mean, he must really love God. And if he loves God, then certainly I can trust him with my stuff. But actually, long prayers prove nothing except good lung capacity. Right? They don't prove anything. You don't really know what is going on inside a person's heart when they are praying. Hiding under the cover of being spiritual, these scribes committed great evil. This is heinous. But why would we expect anything less from a false religious system that never dealt with or addressed the depravity of man's heart, but only focused on and emphasized over and over again appearances or a person's external behavior? They're groomed for this. The system is built around it. See, the reality is they didn't have anything to say to God because they had no genuine relationship with Him. You know why? Because false religion will never, beloved, it will never produce a right relationship with God. It can't. And so you can add all the religious practice and ritual you want to false religion, but in the end, it is nothing but pretense and show and appearance of devotion and love. Not real devotion and love. There is no real substance to it. What do you think of false religion so far? Something to be admired? Something to be embraced? Something to be accepted? Given a wink to, a nod. Hey, it's okay. Everyone does their own thing. How about the last one? This one's where it gets tricky. This is the mystery one. Exploitation. Exploitation. Pride. Greed. Insincerity. Beautiful words, aren't they? about religion. False. Exploitation, the final one. Look back at the text, Mark 12, 41 through 44. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Basically the smallest Hebrew coinage she, she had. It was nothing. It was even less than a penny actually. So Nothing. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with exploitation? Meaning, and let me define exploitation 
taking advantage of a person for one's own advantage or personal gain. I'm just going to define it that way. Taking advantage of a person for one's own advantage or personal gain. Well, let me take a drink of water for this. Until my studies this last week, I have always understood this section of text very differently than I do right now. So I'm just going to let you know that. And it's okay if you understand it in the way I understood it. That's okay. And if you even walk out of here continuing to understand it in the way you've always understood it, that would be okay too. There are good men who differ on this. But it threw me for a loop and it took me a little while uh, to come to grips with what I think is actually going on here. These verses about the widow's offering in the temple have universally been used by pastors to teach a lesson on Christian giving and tell us about a woman who they see as a worthy example to follow on giving. Well, the question then would be, what exactly is the lesson on giving that is, they say is in this passage? Now, here I'm going to borrow heavily from a man named John MacArthur. It doesn't mean I agree with everything he says, but I agree with quite a lot of it. And he, he preached a sermon where this text is also found in Luke 21, 1 through 4, and he titled it, just so you know where he was going, Abusing the Poor. Abusing the Poor. Here's what he says. In regard to these lessons that supposedly are found in this text, here's one of them that is drawn from this text. The measure of a gift, the way to tell how good a gift is, is not how much you give, but how much you have after you give. This woman had nothing after she gave, right? That's what the text says, she gave it all. So then I guess her gift was more meaningful than what the rich gave because when the rich gave, they had a lot left over. So that's one lesson that has been drawn from this passage. Here's another one. The measure of a gift is not about the total amount you give, but about the self-denial involved or the cost to you personally as an individual. So in this case, it cost this poor woman 100% of what she had. So she gave the most, if I'm measuring her gift that way, even though she only gave two small copper coins, insignificant, because she gave all that she had, and it cost her the most. A third lesson that is taught from this passage is that the measure of the gift is based on the attitude of the giver, or the way in which you give it. So you might hear this, are you giving selflessly? Does it express love for God and trust in God? And people have waxed eloquently about the fact that this woman gave it all. And so she must have had to have trusted God to provide for her since she went home with absolutely nothing, being a destitute widow. We're told then that the widow had the least left behind gave the highest percentage, and apparently she had the best attitude while she was giving. And fourthly, not many go here, but some have suggested that the gift that truly pleases God is when you give everything and take a vow of poverty. That's the one I want to go with this morning, and we'll be taking another offering here in a few moments. <laughs> uh. Now, here are some of the titles, by the way, that pastors have given to their sermons that cover this text. Just so you understand, I'm not making this up. And if you've been a Christian a while, you've probably been exposed to this text, and you know what I'm talking about. 
Here's one title, A Pattern for Giving. Grace and Giving. And the first sentence in his sermon is, Our motive and mode of giving matters to God. Uh, The woman who gave the most when she gave the least. Creative. A giving heart. The ABCs of giving. You get the idea? They clearly think that this passage is about giving. Now, I've heard it used many times that way, and as I've said before, I've, I have always, and I have believed up till this last week, that this passage is about giving. But what I've come to realize is that most of what is said by meaning, well-meaning and sincere men of God about this passage is not really in the passage. It's really not there. It's forced into it. It's imposed over it. And now I'll directly quote John MacArthur because I think this is what really made me wrestle with this and think about this. This is what he said. Jesus never said anything about what's left behind, what percentage, what attitude, or do the same thing and give everything. He didn't. Jesus never makes any of these points. He does not say the rich gave relatively too little. They had too much left over. He doesn't say the rich gave too low a percent. He doesn't say the widow gave the right amount. He doesn't say the rich had a bad attitude and the widow had a good attitude or a good spirit. He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't say anything about their giving except that she gave more than everybody. He doesn't say why or with what attitude or whether she should have or shouldn't have or they should have or shouldn't have. In fact, her outward action is all that you see in the text. That's it. It is no more or less good, bad, indifferent, humble, proud, selfish, unselfish than anybody's Anybody else's act. There is no judgment made on her act as to its true character. You won't find it. It's not in the text. There is nothing said about her attitude or her spirit. She could be acting out of devotion. She could be acting out of love. She could be acting out of guilt. She could be acting out of fear. We don't know because Jesus doesn't say anything. Doesn't say anything about the rich. Doesn't say anything about the widow. Doesn't draw any conclusions. Doesn't develop any principles. Doesn't command anything. Doesn't define anything. Why? Because none of that matters. Now, I've had a few days to wrestle with this. All week, really. Because it totally changed my outline. I threw out my outline halfway through my message. I was going a completely different direction. I was going to talk about who Jesus condemns those scribes and who He commends that poor widow. I had a beautiful outline. It would have worked out really well. But then I got here and I was all confused. I had to wrestle through this. You know, it's like the first time that you found out as a Christian, and if you don't know, this will be fun for you, that they're really... We don't know how many wise men were actually there You know, you see the picture, it shows three. Just so you know, beloved, that's not in the Bible. It doesn't say three. It it doesn't. Check it for yourself. We, 
we put three there. It's become a tradition. And some of us said, well, the three represent the gifts. Gold, frankincense, mirror. Fine, one for each one. But it just says magi, wise men came. It was probably more than three, but we don't know. Here's another one. That when I found out, I, I really wrestled with this because this is what I was taught. And I believed this all my life that, that there in the manger and in the stable, the feeding trough, lay the little Lord baby Jesus. That's true. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds who came. And there's the three wise men. They're all there and they're bowing down and presenting the gifts. Not so, beloved. When the wise men finally got there, they came to his house. A house. They were no longer in the stable. Ooh, that was enough right there. Look at that. I was like, what? This is heresy. So what I do, I didn't do it this year, but I've done in the past. I put the wise men across the other side of the room and I put baby Jesus over here and they make their way. But they'll never get there. They'll never get there because eventually they go to a house and that's when they visit him. So I only bring that up. I only bring that up to just show you that sometimes we buy into stuff, believe stuff, that isn't necessarily in the Scripture. Now, good men have drawn these principles out of this text. All I'm saying and all John MacArthur is pointing out is it's really not there. It's really not there. You, you have, it's a stretch. It's a stretch to get there. So if Mark 12, 41 through 44 is not meant to be a lesson on giving, what is it there for? Well, it's important to note its context. Where is it landing in Scripture, what's going on before and what's going after? And I'm going to sum this up fairly quickly without uh, taking too much more time. It falls, this particular section about this widow, it falls between Jesus' condemnation of corrupt religious leaders who, by the way, had no problem stealing from poor widows. And what follows this scene of this poor widow is an announcement of judgment that would come upon this corrupt religious system that they were committed to. Look back at the text with me, Mark 13, just the the chapter we'll begin to look at next week. Here's the scene. He, He goes after the religious leaders, which you see fully in Mark, Matthew 23. And we see in a little bit here in Mark. He then sits down after a long day of dealing with this whole corrupt religious system and the, and the religious leaders that defend it and support it and want to see him gone, he sits down. And what does he see in the temple courtyard there in the place where the collection boxes were? He sees a, a poor widow giving her last two cents to this corrupt system. And then he leaves the temple. It says he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This place is beautiful and gorgeous. Look what has been purchased with all the money. I'm adding that. I am. I'm adding that. That's not in the text. But wow, it's so impressive. Always external. That's what this religion is about. External. It never gets to the internal issues. You know what Jesus says? Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And what he does here is he predicts the destruction that came in A.D. 70. 
They wiped the temple out. The Romans came against them and crushed the temple. And to this day, it has not been rebuilt. The context is judgment upon a false religious system and the leaders of that corrupt, vile, wicked, deplorable system. Now, if we come to Mark 12, 41 through 44, this section here, without any previous thoughts about what it might mean, then I think what you are left with is simply an observation by Jesus. That's it. Not some deep, secret, hidden meaning about how Christians are supposed to give to the church, as if we're supposed to give it all away and be left destitute. Is that what God's asking? Especially a poor widow? Jesus, after seeing this poor widow deposit the last two coins to her name into the collection box, is simply stating that this poor widow gave more to the temple than everybody else. That's what he's saying. Relatively speaking, because she gave all that she had. Yes, she did. And so, relatively speaking, her involvement in this religion cost her more than it cost anybody else because it cost her absolutely everything. Now let me ask you a question. Do you see anything wrong with a religious system that is led by proud, greedy, and insincere men and has no problem taking the last two coins out of a poor widow's hand? And so quoting John MacArthur, he says, How would you feel if you saw a destitute, impoverished person give to her religion her last hope for life? to perhaps go home and die. You'd be sick. You'd feel terrible. You would be repulsed. Any religion that is built on the back of the poor is a false religion. What a sad, misguided, poor, victimized lady. It's tragic, painful. And I think that's exactly how Jesus saw it. Exactly. Kind of puts a different twist on that passage, doesn't it? This false religious system exploited people. It exploited people. It took advantage of the weakest of the society. You have to remember this is the same religious system that suggested that a person could make themselves right with God, find forgiveness of their sins by giving money. By making offerings. That's what they suggested. That's what they taught. That's why the disciples were freaked out when Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And the disciples said, what? They were shocked. They said, who then can be saved? Because they had come up underneath a system that said, listen, the more you give, the better off you are with God. So obviously the rich are in the best place they can be because they're pouring the money in. That's the system she grew up in. False religion, beloved, is destructive. It's deplorable. It's despicable. It is damnable. No matter what form it comes in, whether first century Judaism or all the garbage that we have running around today, That is nothing but false religion. 
See it for what it really is underneath the hood. Under the surface. If you do, then you won't embrace it. Or be accepting of it. Or say, hey, can't we all just get along? Aren't we all talking about the same God anyway? Isn't it really not that big of a deal whether you're a Christian or this or something or that? It's a really big deal. Because false religion destroys people. Not only in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And we as disciples of Jesus Christ must be about the business of rescuing people from it. Rescuing them! Not encouraging them in it or giving complacent approval to it. May God help us to do that this coming year, beloved. Let's pray. Father, help us to see false religion for what it really is. To see all these things that masquerade as being the truth, but have turned from the truth and are corrupted. And because of that, they are hopeless. They offer no help. They cannot set people on the right course. They do not lead to God. They do not provide salvation. And yet they claim to do all these things. Father, help us to see it for what it is. Vile and wicked and one day will be exposed completely and fully to your judgment and those also who subscribe to it. And Lord, may that break our hearts and may it cause us to go after them. Not to see them as the enemy, but those who have been caught up in that which cannot ultimately save them or help them. That which leaves them enslaved to their sin and has placed them on the path to hell. Regardless of how pretty their buildings look, or how many religious rituals they may have, or how long they might pray, or how much they protest that their religion is just as good as yours. Father, may we go after them in love. Not to tear them down, not to destroy them, but to rescue them and to proclaim to them the truth of Jesus Christ and His Gospel that they might come into the light and escape the darkness. May we do that. Father, help us. Refocus us. And may we not give a nod to that garbage. But may we talk to our friends and our neighbors and our relatives about it. And may we simply in love and in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit share the simple Truth of salvation through Jesus Christ and a new life in Him. Father, we ask that You would do that through this little body, that Your massive, big, glorious name would be exalted and glorified among us. In Jesus' name, Amen.